The rain is falling. It's after dark. The streets are swimming with the sharks. Hello. Welcome to this week's episode of the Casual Tuesdays Book Club. Sorry I'm a day late with this one. I just got caught up in some other stuff and I didn't get around to it. I try to post them on SoundCloud on Tuesdays, but they usually, I guess, don't get to iTunes until Wednesday. So maybe I'm two days late. I don't know. Anyway, uh, the reason I didn't cram this recording in yesterday is because it's one of my all-time favorite pieces of writing and I really wanted to do a good job. And I think I'll do an okay job. Anyway, <laughs> um, the for this week, it's Return to Tipasa by Albert Camus. You can find it online at Genius.com, which is kind of funny because it's usually a song lyrics website. But whatever, it works. Uh, okay, let's go. There is a lot to talk about with this essay. As I said before, it's one of my all-time favorites, and I'll probably end up fanboying a little bit, kind of like I did with the Joan Didion and the Virginia Woolf episodes. Anyway, throughout there, this essay, there's incredible imagery and lyricism, and it's all tied into this very resonant philosophy for life. And on one hand, I don't want to restate things from the text, but on the other hand, there's so much there that it's easy to miss stuff. And actually, Connor and I both love this essay for different reasons, so maybe some of the things that I think are obvious are overlooked. I don't know. Whatever. Here's a plan. I'm just going to go through and pick out a couple things that stuck out to me or that I think are interesting with the knowledge that it will in no way be a comprehensive analysis. Not that like any of my 15 minute, you know, maybe 25 minute podcasts are really comprehensive, but just there's so much here and I don't have a text question for this week. So instead just text me what you think is interesting, what your favorite part of the essay was or your favorite aspect of it. And that'd be great. Um, All right, now we'll actually get started. The first subject I wanna talk about is time. Uh, and also a little bit about scaling. So regular listeners will be annoyed because I've talked about scaling before, but Camus does a little bit of it in this essay. By scaling, I kind of mean zooming in and zooming out. Uh, And a decent number of authors do it, but few can do it like Camus, who not only keeps his audience's attention while doing it, but makes a larger point. Uh, If you're still unclear, here's an example that's not really what I want to talk about, but it's from the uh, story. He says that, oh my gosh, I lost my place in the notes. Oh, dead time, dead time. Uh, uh, there we go. Okay. He says nations and men tearing at each other's throats. So that's a great, really concise version because you've got the, yeah, nations and men, individual and on this huge international scale, things are, uh, but they're very comparable. So that's the idea of scaling that I kind of want to talk about. Um, but I also want to talk about it in the context of time. And I have to refine my place in the notes. One second. Okay, here we go. Okay. In the beginning chunk of the essay, Camus sets up two different but kind of congruent scales of time. He has day versus night, an actual time shift of a couple hours, and visiting to Pasa in his youth versus visiting as an older man, an actual time shift of many years. Now, using nighttime and darkness as a symbol for evil or bad things isn't unique, and neither is idealizing youth. But this initial setup you know, kind of sets the stage for bigger stuff. For starters, remember that this is just the beginning, and by the end of the essay, he's kind of reclaimed this youth, so to speak. So some of that pessimistic air to it gets shed by the end. But more importantly, um, or what I wanted to talk about mostly, is by making those two things congruent, those two, the shift of a couple hours and the shift of many years congruent, he, uh, Camus is allowing time to kind of bend. What I mean by that is that if hours and years behave on the same scale, 
you can reattain years and reattain hours in the same way. I don't think I did a great job of that description. Uh, so I'm just going to, I'll hit you with a quote. Okay. And it comes when Camus is in the ruins and he's standing on the hill and he's having his epiphany. He says, quote, years of wrath and night melted slowly away, end quote. And right there, you have night and years set up as equivalents, but also they both kind of leave in this pure moment. And they're both able to be shed, I think partially able to be shed so easily because previously they've been set up as congruent, as similar uh, aspects. Anyway, this epiphany cleansing thing, though, isn't really unique for a story. It's very well written here, but it's not a unique thing to do in a story. So I want to bring up some more intense time-bending stuff. Quote, I had always known that the ruins of Tipasa were younger than our new constructions or our bomb damage. End quote. Okay, obviously the ruins in a historical sense are much, much older. Um, but... <laughs> Yet, you know, Camus tells us otherwise. Taken in context, we know that Camus, associate, or Camus associates youth with a better time and a life. So they might be younger, not in time, but in the sense that they are more idealistic or they represent this better part uh, of his life and a better era for the world. Nonetheless, this is an anachronism and it's kind of jarring, but I think it's supposed to be jarring because it kind of shakes the reader awake and it sets up, if you've got something like this, you know, it has this metaphoric meaning that we can very tangibly relate to, but it also just sets up this idea that time is very flexible. And that's going to be important, as I will tell you in like a little bit right now. Okay. <laughs> okay. During the same epiphany moment, the sun has stopped moving. So everything freezes and he says, quote, it seemed to me that I had come, I had at last, ah, man, I've had to re-record this section because I butchered this quote the first time I did it. Okay, take two. It seemed to me that I had at last come to harbor, for a moment at least, and that henceforth that moment would be endless. End quote. Boom. There we go. Okay, so now we've got this moment in time that has stretched and had become infinite. And we know that time isn't like literally frozen, and Camus has kind of just internalized this perfect moment. But... All this weird, non-standard, time-bendy stuff is really important. First of all, I think it's just fucking cool. Um, I was just reading about like time travel and stuff this weekend and like the physics behind it. It's really wild. Anyway, but second, with all that reminiscing at the beginning, it seems like Camus' goal is really to go back in time and live like he was when he was 20. And he doesn't have a time machine. He can't go back. That's an impossible desire, an impossible goal. Instead, he has this perfect moment. And so what he, he can't go back in time. So he has to distort time in ways and distort his perception of time in the ways that he can um, kind of continue to live this moment and internalize this moment. And part of that involves kind of this distortion of time. And it's this artificial way for him to reclaim his youth. Okay, up next is the weather. Camus talks about the weather a lot. And again, this is a pretty conventional symbol. Rainy is sad, dark is bad, sunlight is good. Now, he delivers this with just absolutely beautiful lyricism. And I don't want to get into that because I could just quote the entire essay to you and talk about how beautiful the lyrics are. Um, he delivers everything in his essay. He could describe like a, like a curry poop and make it beautiful. That's not the point. I want to focus on the way weather ties into the philosophical sp points. Specifically, the moment of the epiphany, the sun stops, and the world is beautiful, and the rain has gone away, 
And it's a really obvious symbol, the fact that the weather is so tuned to Camus' thoughts. And it gives, but what I really liked about it is it gives his philosophizing this cosmic weight. Uh, like, I'm not much for sentimentality or like mysticism and stuff like that. And I really don't like it when people are like, oh, I'm sending good vibes your way. Like, don't. That doesn't do anything. I mean, it's like a nice gesture. So I try not to be an asshole about it. But in my head, I would never say that I'm sending good vibes to someone. And even if I'm, you know, stuff does coincide neatly or symbolically, you shall think, wow, that was a coincidence, unrelated coincidence. And if I wrote a story that included this detail, it would just come off as a dreadful cliche. But if I was thinking about something on a hilltop and the sun fucking stopped, I'd probably write that shit down. Um, and yeah, I just think that the weather, this the sun stopping and all this weather really lends, uh, it's this kind of this cosmic harmony to what Camus is saying. And it gives this, sort of natural reinforcement to his philosophy. All right, the next thing I want to talk about is something I didn't appreciate in the essay until I'd read it this time around. I've read it many times. Um, and this thing that I didn't appreciate is that in his memories from his youth, Camus says that there's like the same perfect sky and the same perfect sea. And what stuck out to me was this notion of immutability. <clears throat> and I have a couple ideas about why that is and why, that's, uh, why it's there and what it means. So first... People generally romanticize the past, uh, especially in their, when they're in a tough spot. So given the, bleak, the bleakness of the present and the wars and all that stuff, Camus is remembering the past better than it was, or he's remembering a symbolic past, and he's kind of adding these other details. The second reason this stuck out to me, though, is because by the end, he's talking about how you have to embrace both the good and the bad to truly appreciate life. The black thread and the white pulled to the breaking point. And yet, this memory seems to only include good stuff to this point where the weather is perfect all the time. Now, the third, I think this could be tied into that cosmic notion that I was just talking about earlier. So that, you know, his life was such so good that the sun was always cooperative. Really, I think it could be all of these factors. Um, and I think the potential contradiction in the second thing that Camus is avoiding the bad when he's telling us not to, I think that's escapable for Camus because in the end he recognizes that this philosophy is a process and that he's not in harmony or in balance all the time. So yeah, he can have altered memories as we all do and still get credit for acknowledging and being aware of the bad in life and while at the same time appreciating the good. All right, next up is another thing I didn't notice until this time around. That is Chinua. Oh, man. I don't I don't ever took French, so I'm sure that I'm pronouncing that wrong. Whatever. Chinua, the the mountain <laughs> is uh, described as a figure or a, you know, an aspect of romantic era sublimity. So, the romantics, which is the literary movement that preceded Camus basically, the romantics love nature. You could argue that they kind of invented nature uh, as a phenomenon and they started travel writing. That's not the point I'm trying to make. The nature, the romantics love nature and they love feelings and they wanted emotional experiences. And the best emotional experience you get was the sublime, which is this feeling of excitement and awe at the raw and potentially terrible, but potentially beautiful, like, you know, creative power of God. And so they would go to like the Alps and basically, and just look at all the pointy mountains and be like, damn, God is very powerful. And that's exciting and a little bit afraid. It's like a fear boner. A sublimity is a fear boner, basically. 
Um, <laughs> uh, that's the technical term for it. Anyway, I was surprised because uh, Chinoa, like the description of it, fits that mold. So I think the image of it as a frozen tidal wave is a perfect short summary for this because a tidal wave is an enormous destructive force and we know God loved to flood places. Um, but then, you know, freezing that tidal wave and solidifying it as a mountain um, is this incredible power that only God could have as well. Um, and look, I love romantic uh, poetry and so this stuck out to me for that reason, but it's really interesting to me because of it's Camus that wrote it. Now, this is known as one of his romantic essays. So you expect a little romanticism, but he's also regarded as an existentialist, though he actually never really liked that designation. Anyway, it's interesting to me because the modern movement in literature is largely about rejecting romantic ideals. The best example is the last line in The Sun Also Rises by fellow Nobel laureate Ernest Hemingway. He says, isn't it pretty to think so? I.e., all these romantic ideals are really nice as ideas, but unrealistic and actually dangerous. You know, when you look at the context of World War One and World War Two, Camus' father was in World War One, um, and Camus himself lived through World War Two. So, there's <laughs> really intimate knowledge of all this stuff. And look, Camus wrote *The Stranger*, so you know he's definitely he's not a romantic, but with this description. And really, this essay as a whole, the philosophy of this essay as a whole, but then also this little description, he's showing that there are some things about romanticism that he still holds on to and that he still values. Okay, the penultimate topic. I noticed that in this essay, Camus refers to Europe as kind of the other. Uh, he's quietly alluding basically to this idea that he's not European. Um, and this stuck out to me just given the prevalence of current identity politics. So Camus was born and raised in French Algiers. He went to university there, um, but his dad was French and his mom was Spanish. So he, and he also, he grew up very poor as well. Okay. Politically, Camus was very revolutionary minded. He supported the communist party to fight the inequities between Europeans and native Algerians. Uh, and then he got kicked out of that party for supporting the Algerian independence movement. Um, and I think this is interesting because I've always thought of him as a French guy. I know he's buried in France. Um, and he wasn't like a multi-generational Algerian. He was, you know, his, but he was poor. So it's really hard to implicate him as part of this colonial oppressive force. Um, but yeah, you can tell that he really identifies as an Algerian and that Europe is kind of this other place. And I just thought that was really interesting because he's, uh, he's pretty much a white dude. And so I... Don't want to like delve into identity politics too much, but I thought that it was interesting to see that aspect, you know, kind of quietly show up uh, in this essay. All right, finally, the last thing, which is really the first thing in my mind, and that is that Camus can spit hot, hot, hot fire. This essay is filled with so many incredible quotes that I could, you could just pick out any random sentence and it's probably just this beautifully constructed image and philosophical twist. Um, but I wanted to give you my favorite. It's very, means a lot to me. And then I'll make a kind of vague point about it for literary purposes. But really, I just want to give you this quote. And that is, in the middle of winter, I at last discovered that there was in me an invincible summer. Now, alternatively, you could say, in the middle of, in the depths of winter, I finally learned that, that within me there lay an invincible summer. 
There are two options because this was, oh, I just got an email that I will delete immediately. Okay, <laughs> there are two options because this was originally written in French. Um, I wanna go into the weeds of translations on this podcast. Actually, well, just this episode, I'll probably do it later. But I will say this, French as a language is actively designed to sound nice and lyrical. Like they have meetings in Paris to add new words to French so that it maintains this sound. And the point is, that I'm trying to get at is, if something as beautiful as that is the translation of from from a more lyrical language, I imagine this essay is just absolutely astonishing to read or listen to in French. And that's the most compelling reason I can think of to learn French. Um, and yeah, it's just that's my most that's my favorite sentence ever, by the way. Just sentence. Favorite sentence, period. That's it. Yeah. Yeah, this is this is not a very good conclusion right here. Ah. Thank you for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. I know you enjoyed the essay. And if you didn't, read it again, because you're actually wrong. You do, you do enjoy this. And if you still don't like it, then we will have to renegotiate our friendship. Anyway, again, text me what your favorite uh, part was uh, to participate in stuff. Okay, the song for this week is Shadow People by Dr. Dog. I chose it because it actually starts with the exact same image, uh, rain and, well, not the exact same, but rain and darkness and the like. Also, uh, the song kind of is about searching for something. Um, and I thought it was kind of cool to have that same similar starting image and have it mapped two different ways. Anyway, next week's episode will be about Mary Gateskill's story, Something Better Than This. Which is weird because it's coming right after Camus and I don't know if there's things better than this. Anyway, thanks again for tuning in and here's a bit more Dr. Dog. <laughs>